0: You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. You're listening to the Policy Room by SPRF. Last year, same time, the world watched as India and China clashed in the Galwan Valley. It was the first bloodshed between the two nations in 45 years, complete with barbed wire bats and maces. This year, last week, the External Affairs Minister S. Jay Shankar acknowledged that the Indochina relationship is, quote, going through a very difficult phase, unquote, stating that a large part of it was because China deployed a large part of their military close to the line of actual control. Although both countries have agreed to disengage and de-escalate the border conflict, disagreements still continue. Today, we examine the historical and policy decisions which complicated the Indochina border, the colonial roots of the conflict, and explore if there is peace at the end of the tunnel for the two neighbors. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us on today's podcast. I am Ria Singh Rathor, Research and Editorial Coordinator at SPRF, here with Dr. Kyle Gardner. Dr. Gardner is a historian by training. He currently works at McLarty Associates, strategic advisory firm and is also a non-resident scholar at George Washington University. He has spent over a decade in South Asia and can educate anyone about Indochina politics in English, Hindi, Urdu, and even Tibetan. He has written extensively on histories of geopolitics and the art of border making in, in the Himalayas some of which you can find in his first book, The Frontier Complex, Geopolitics and the Making of the India-China Border, 1846-1962. Tashi Dele, Dr. Gardner, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Rhea, especially during such a a tense and uncertain time uh, in, in India.
0: I mean, I've already told you how excited I am uh, to have you on this podcast, so this is just a a fangirling episode for me, I think. Um, Okay, so let's head into the questions first. Um, Let's just start by discussing the history of the Indochina border. We have to first understand this very interesting and yet very foreign concept of watersheds. Can you give our listeners a short crash course uh, on what is water parting and why uh, they're at the center of understanding the Indochina border?
1: Yeah, so it's a, uh, it's a, it's a complicated question, but I'll try to, to, to start first and foremost with what a watershed actually is. And, uh, you know, in brief, it's another word for a drainage basin, um, and this is either uh, a a way to describe a network of bodies of water, rivers, streams, lakes, and so forth that are either open, exoraic, and that they flow out to a sea or or ocean, uh, or endoraic, and that they're closed and they flow into themselves. And the watershed was seen by geographers and colonial administrators in the 19th century to offer what was Seen as a sort of ideal scientific boundary-making object. So when combined with this supposedly linear mountain range, they offered a surveyable, mappable object that could yield a territorial border in a way that other natural objects, such as rivers, sometimes failed to do or, or generated problems, which we can discuss later... Or more artificial forms, such as using lines of latitude and longitude or boundary pillars, sometimes failed to do. So the root of the India-China border dispute really rests in colonial era attempts to use the, the Himalaya as, and, and the watersheds that flow from it, notably the Indus watershed in, in the north, um, as objects to define define a boundary and that of course failed spectacularly for the British and we're still dealing with the consequences of that today
0: right and that is something that whenever I read any of uh, your pieces specifically and others as well on uh, the Britishers using the watersheds, especially in your 2019 piece moving watersheds borderless maps You explain how there is some degree of surveying, uh, you know, some degree of surveys involved. And there was at some point an employment of sophisticated technologies on the part of the Britishers. But you also point out that it is still a very broken and unsuitable system for dividing lands. And yet we see that the principle became the key tenet, as you say, of international boundary making in the 20th century. Um, This to me raises many questions, the biggest one being, who did it uh, truly serve? Um, It certainly didn't consider the indigenous communities living on ground because a watershed would drive a physical wedge through their population since no organic human settlement happens according to watersheds. And yet at the same time, water parting didn't particularly ease the operations to my understanding for the colonizers either. The easiest way out, I would argue, would be to take a ruler and draw a line on the world map as they did with Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Chad, and so forth. So what then drove this colonial obsession with mutilating nations using their own natural resources? What is the logic behind this?
1: Yeah, those are good questions. And I think that You know, the question first as to who did the the water parting best serve? And I think that to really answer that, we need to dive more deeply into a broader, kind of more abstract transformation that was taking place in the 19th century, uh, and and particularly through European imperialism, Uh, and, and that has to do with a new way of thinking about about bounding space, so you know historically in places like Ladakh and Tibet, we have, you know, there are there are long-established notions of borders, but these typically take the form of of either points or particular um, you know, passes, for instance. I mean the name Ladakh literally means land of passes. And, And this is really reflective of ways of thinking about political space that didn't require a solid kind of mappable, linear, closed borderline, but instead, you know, really only required notions of points at passes. So, you know, when we think about, I mean, often, especially in, you know, in the Indian press, we often hear about all of, you know, these various laws, you know, whether it's Zojila or Natula or mm, uh, yeah. Cardonga, you know, all of these passes, these laws were historically points at which, whether it was taxation or political control of one form or another, transitioned. And the British coming in and demanding a, a different kind of conception of space really, um, really sort of uh, upended this. Mm -hmm. And so the result was that, you know, surveyors sent out first in in 1846 uh, after the East India Company defeated the the Sikh Empire and created the state of Jammu and Kashmir, which it then gave to the Dogra Rajas of Jammu, who had a decade earlier invaded Ladakh and took control over it to better consolidate their control over the Pashmina trade, which was running through Ladakh. But from the very beginning in 1846, British surveyors attempted to define the water parting, the limits of the watershed. And they did that by going out and and surveying and attempting to map where a neat sort of line of mountains might exist. And and this in some ways would yield a line on a map that they assumed, the British assumed, would come under little dispute. I mean, unlike the northwest frontier or the northeast, the frontier in Ladakh was long assumed to be a very pacific, peaceful, stable region. And so the idea was that if you use the watershed to find the border, Once it's defined as you know, uh, they assume their surveys would would define it. Then they would, then they you know it it would be done, and they would have it on a map, and that would find. So you know, in a certain sense, the border they they had very little regard or little understanding for the kinds of historical ties that connected, for instance, places like Ladakh and Tibet, long established. Uh, trade and, and pilgrimage networks, those from Central Asia as well. I mean, Ladakh was really, for most of its history, a, a crossroads of trade and culture, but it was only through the British insistence on kind of defining a border through it that we started to see it become the borderland that it now really is today. Um, and so when you mention these you know, these other examples of types of border drawing, for instance, in Africa, yeah, you know, you're seeing there another way in which the expediency of imperial powers to carve up land often simply didn't take into account what the historical local cultural dynamics were. And in the case of Africa and the scramble for Africa, the, the conference of Berlin in 1885, where the European powers literally sat around a, a conference table and carved up Africa with lines of you know, longitude and latitude, um, you know that really was the easiest, the most expedient way for them to go about dividing territory that they still had surveyed in very limited ways, in the case of the British in the Himalaya, there you have a much, was what was deemed to be a much more scientific way of de- defining a border. And, and this, you know, came out of European notions of geographical sciences that, you know, we can associate with people like Alexander von Humboldt in the early 19th century, thinking about natural systems of mountains and waters, and particularly that watershed or drainage basin, as ways of defining a more a more natural border. And this eventually by the end of the 19th century emerges in the concept of geopolitics, which is basically an idea that ties the features of the national w- world to the kind of life or death of states. And you know this emerges in, in the writings of, you know, among others, the sort of arch-imperialist, the Viceroy George Curzon of mm. the century, and others who view a strong border or frontier as a, you know, th- in his words, sort of strange, uh, the razor's edge upon which yeah, you know, the yeah. nations rest. Yeah. So, you know, there's a real sense of the importance of borders as a determinant on the success or failure of the states, which they bound, that emerges through this process of surveying. So in some sense, it's kind of the more surveying that was done, the more the borders became important.
0: Right. I think it also, now that you speak Mm -hmm. of it, it also gives you sort of an insight into the colonial mindset, which I assume would just be, you know, we are never leaving. So why sort it out right now? Um, particularly, I got this uh, sense when I was re- going through your article, and in multiple places, I think it's mentioned that at the time there was just this uh, looming threat of Russia, Russia sort of uh, annexing quote unquote um, either Tibet or India or just growing scare, uh, Soviet scare, so to say. Um, yeah. So I think they always just thought that, you know, honor among thieves almost, that all colonial powers who are currently in or then in Asia would respect each other's watersheds, so to say. Um, And I just think they never thought that they would leave, which is why they just, you know, I can't even imagine not giving a nation a solid border because that is an inheritance of a lifetime of conflict, which is exactly what has happened. Um, yeah.
1: And, and in some sense, although these maps would now perhaps be prohibited by India's map regulations, um, in 1947, when the British left and India gained independence, there were maps that the Survey of India produced that were literally borderless. And partly because the surveying across the Himalaya, but particularly in Ladakh and the Oxide Chin, Mm. Uh, failed to sufficiently detail the, you know, the limits of the, the Indus watershed, which had been determined to be the northern border of India by the British, um, mm-hmm. but which hadn't satisfactorily been defined. And of course, this gets to the kind of existential difference between an empire and a nation state, which is that an empire can deal with a degree of ambiguity on its right. frontiers in a way that a nation state can. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, an object of existential importance for a nation state, particularly one emerging from under the yoke of an imperial power such as India. And so borders then become things for which mm. uh, People give their lives. Um, yeah. But of course, that becomes more difficult when the exact location of those borders haven't been haven't been determined. And this is a real great tragedy of the disputes, the ongoing disputes between India and China is that this isn't, uh, you know, I mean, we refer now to the line of actual control, but in practice, there's still no line there. And so, I mean, it really is one of the great sort of ironic tragedies of the dispute is that there still hasn't been a clear unambiguous and certainly not a demarcated line. And that very much is a colonial legacy, although it's been complicated by decades of politics and right. um, and and tactics between India and China.
0: Yeah, I think it, uh, you're absolutely right. And just one uh sidebar anecdote was when I was studying in Ireland and I went on this tour where the bus driver was also the guide and he was telling us about the border between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland and because Northern Ireland is also extent by extension UK although that's a very sensitive sp- statement depending on where how one feels about the situation um yeah. There is one, uh, during like the border partition happening between Northern Ireland and and the Republic, I believe in County Monaghan, there was one farmer who said, I I don't want to choose. And so till date, if you see at the border, it goes around a farm. Um, And it's that, you know, that's the interest, that's the intricacy and the detail, the level of detail that the Britishers thought of going through because they knew they would have to share this border so yeah. i think they were not oblivious to uh, just yeah. how sensitive the situation can be and,
1: and i mean to that point in particular that i mean they so the you know the colonial administrators did where possible draw upon historical understandings of borders and in fact i mean there was in the colonial archive, there's references to you know, Abu Fuzzle's Aini Akbari, you know, and the, the Akbarnama um, oh, wow. going back to the, the kind of Mughal district level, the sort of um, mm-hmm. uh, province and district level borders. And in some cases, you know, especially in the plains of India, you know, those long established, although the British did try to modify, in some cases, districts where I thought it made more sense to them. And we see, you know, we see that overlap with Ireland too. And of course, Mm -hmm. there's many historians will sort of describe Ireland as Britain's first colony. Right. And and the the parallel, I mean, the parallels between India and Ireland are extensive. Mm -hmm. But in some sense, the reason that British surveyors and these boundary experts that emerged in the 19th century, Mm. why they looked to the watershed and mountains was to, in some sense, negate the problems that emerged from the use of other borders that were more permeable. So the notion of, for instance, of using a a river, Mm. not only do rivers change course, and of course this is a uh, a big issue. Um, you know, every year it seemed, and you know, in the colonial archive, there would be a, a record of, especially between India and Nepal, uh, a record of surveys being conducted to uh, examine the changed course of a particular river that had somehow, because of the annual sort of seasonal water flow and, and surges, created a change in. Uh, in the precise location of the river, and so if the, you know, if you were to use a river, not only as a border, um, national or subnational, then you risk the problem of what happens if the river changes course, and to add to that, and and this is something that colonial officials acknowledged, um, you often have similar people on both sides of those rivers, so I think in the, the mindset of the emerging kind of racial racialized thinking of people like George Curzon and administrators, they thought, well, you know, better to use a mountain range as a divider because you, you're less likely to find people of the quote-unquote same races on, mm. on either side of those mountains. And in some sense, that was drawing off of a kind of European... Mm. Sense of of mountains as dividers. I mean, we can think about the role of the Pyrenees, for instance, in kind of uh, separating and defining the you know, emerging states of Spain and, and France. But the idea of using a mountain and and, and the water parting, where possible, was in some mm. sense to try to mitigate the disputes that you know would arise if other natural objects were used to to make boundaries or if, you know, if more artificial things like, uh, mm. you know, boundary colors and things like that. There was a, incidentally, to, to, your, to your point about Ireland, there was, a, right. there, there was an article not too long ago, I think it was in the, the New York Times, about uh, a dispute that arose over a farmer in Belgium, I believe, mm. uh, moving a, a boundary stone that had been there for, since the French-Belgian border defined by a commission back 100 some odd years ago and you know the farmer thinking this stone is in the wrong place I'm going to move it and in so doing inadvertently moved the the French-Belgian border um, (laughs) and caused a bit of a you know a bit of a stir so you know those are the problems that can arise when you use more sort of artificial means. And so at least, you know, however naively the British surveyors that, you know, spent a century attempting to define a border in in the Himalayas did so under the assumption that, well, you know, these mountains and the watersheds that are the water partings, um, you know, that that they ostensibly, um, that the mountains provide ought to be a kind of neat scientific way to define a border. And, of course, that failed spectacularly in the Aksai Chin, which is a region which does not topographically have a nice mountain range running through it, but is instead this sort of high-altitude, arid, kind of rolling mountain land much of which is actually, you know, it turns out satellites later reveal is part of the Tarim Basin, which is an mm-hmm. endoray watershed. So it's not even part of the Indus.
0: Okay. I uh, that was my I I think that the story that you just told me of the French-Belgian border was brilliant. Um, I'll I'll add that to my list of stories which <laughs> prove that how just how dynamic borders can be and yeah. our misunderstanding of their rigidity in general. Um, uh, thank you for offering me the perfect way to segue to the next question, which uh, I, I tilts a little more towards climate change and just the general dynamism, which is involved in a border making because they are after all human constructs. But in this particular question, I want to dive uh, further into understanding the watersheds, which you've explained splendidly so far. Especially their changing nature, as you mentioned. From a climate change perspective, um, in a couple of your writings, you use the words elusive and moving. With a sentence even reading, quote, the apparently fixed water parting lines of the Indus watershed system had a suspicious tendency to move, unquote. It's a scary thought that the border of an entire subcontinent is dependent on not only topography that moves, but also topography that could move even more after climate change. What exactly makes watersheds dynamic in your opinion? In addition, do you see climate change affecting border issues between India and China because of moving watersheds?
1: Yeah, those are, those are good questions. And to clarify, so watersheds, the kind of moving or elusive nature that you highlight Mm. um, comes about from really from two historical and climatological trends. One is historical, and and that is that the more surveying that British surveyors did in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries of particularly the oxide chin, uh, the, the messier or less certain, the exact location of mm. the water parting became because in some sense, the moving of that watershed had nothing to do with the watershed itself, mm. uh, but rather had to do with kind of where the British were placing it on a map. So where the line, wh- where it ended actually was. And that in some sense, was a, was a problem of insufficient surveying, but it also highlights what later emerged as a second kind of form of moving, which you rightly you know, highlight in the form of kind of growing specter of climate change. But also, I mean, if we're dealing with a, you know, a very arid region like the Occitan or like Ladakh for that matter, where rainfall or snowfall is very minimal, Mm. we're we're seeing areas that have no permanent water uh, you know permanent water presence in a way that makes it harder to actually define where those water partings in some sense I mean you can't have a water parting if there's no water to part so um so you know it highlights another problem of what do you do when there are no more glaciers or when climate change or the already arid dry tendencies of a particular region are exacerbated. And, you know, we're certainly seeing this less so in the oxide chin has always been arid and dry, but we're seeing this emerge as a growing problem elsewhere along the Himalaya. I mean, we saw Back in February, I think it was the really horrific flooding and sort of glacial Mm, uh, melt-induced flood in Mm Uttarakhand. We've also seen, you know, we've seen climatological surveys that suggest that the glaciers along the Himalaya are melting at, at rates much faster than those elsewhere in the world or at lower elevations. And then you add to that the pressure that that has to downstream South Asia and thinking about how the water demands, um, not just in India, but in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in Nepal, in Bhutan, they're, they're certainly growing. And this is really one point of tension that I think is likely to grow. I mean, we see India has water sharing agreements with with Pakistan over the Indus and with Bangladesh uh, over parts of the sort of Ganga, Ramaputra, although there are still very much, you know, many disputes the the Tista being one of them that have yet to be resolved. But India and China have no water sharing agreements over the... Was referred to in in Tibet as the Yarlung Tsangpo, and in India the Brahmaputra. And in fact, going back as far as I think it was 2008, there were concerns about China diverting much of the or some of the the Yarlung Tsangpo at this what's called the Great Bend yeah. in Tibet, uh, and and perhaps even bringing that water, integrating it into the yeah, you know, the north-south, or the south, south-north water diversion project that brings a lot of the water from the Tibetan Plateau and the sort of south and west of China up to the, the north, the north and east, uh, and to the in drier industrial areas like Beijing and that, that corner of China. So, you know, the threat of water diversion or climate change induced. You know, water flows, which in the short term may mean more water, but in the long term will likely mean less. These are going to have a huge impact both within South Asia and in the dynamics uh, between India and its neighbors Mm. uh, and also between China and its neighbors. I mean, we're seeing problems in the Mekong, um, in Southeast Asia uh, and all over, you know, uh, many of, of China's neighbors because China doesn't have any water sharing agreements and it occupies what is, you know, referred to as Asia's water tower, right? The Tibetan plateau, the sort of right. third pole of the the earth and is the headwaters of the 10 largest rivers in Asia by volume and which feed collectively and indirectly nearly half of the world's population. So water politics are only going to be uh, a growing source of concern going forward.
0: Right. And as I mean, it's very interesting. I did not know it's called the third pole. But that also makes me think that for a place that has so much water and so much potential in terms of just the general topography of the region, and it's surrounded by India and China, it's inevitable that there's going to be some Construction around a border, even though that border very vaguely exists, um, it's inevitable that there's going to be uh, construction just uh, so that each country is able to sort of stake their claim on the land. Almost so recently, the strategic constructions on either side of the Indo-China border has been at the center of the two nations fighting. Like you mentioned, the case of Brahmaputra, I believe uh, China is uh, building a dam. Uh, although I'm not sure how that's going, but there are uh, very worrying reports on how that's progressing. But at the same time, we're talking about the world's two most populous nations, who are cultural giants with growing economies, and they're both very, very rich in nationalist rhetoric, increasingly so in the recent years. So it's inevitable that they would develop infrastructure around their borders, and yet it's that exact same thing that's serving as the chief instigator of a possible war or conflict between Indo- India and China. Um, this is an impossible stalemate situation, or is there some merit in the possibility of a border zone that allows short-term cultural and trade exchanges or other such alternative solutions? Yeah,
1: so I, I think there's a lot to unpack there, and I think one point which you alluded to is that some of the, the the triggers for growing tension, certainly if we think about last year's ongoing tension and standoff between India and China, we can point to at least in part the problem of sort of increased border infrastructures, right? There's the completion of an all-weather road on India's side of the line of actual control to an advanced post- near the Karakoram pass that has been suggested as sort of one of the triggers of chinese aggression their you know road building was you know back even before the war in 62 the completion of or the identification of the chinese built road across the aksai chin in the late 1950s incidentally identified by a ladaki uh, Rinpoche, a reincarnate lama returning from Tibet, very prominent Ladakhi political figure named Bakula Rinpoche, Um, he reported to the Indian government on this road construction in, I think it was 1957. But the road and border infrastructure has always been a source of tension in part, however, because of its absence. And I think that is something worth noting. If we think about the line of control between India and Pakistan, we have a very precisely defined de facto border. Now, obviously, it's also a site of ongoing tensions and despite the most recent ceasefire, in some sense, the line of control has been a much more volatile border, however, If we're getting to the basic problem of the India-China border is that in certain key areas, significantly in in the so-called Western sector and Eastern sector, there is no accepted borderline, then the absence of those border infrastructures makes it more likely to allow for kind of ambiguities of location. And so while it may be, and, you know, here I am, warily as a historian putting on my sort of future cap here and sort of crystal ball gazing, uh, you know, it may actually, and this is somewhat sort of counterintuitive, but the development, however tense it might be in the short term of more border infrastructure along the line of actual control might actually gradually yield a kind of more precise de facto borderline in the way that the line of control between, between India and Pakistan is, that's only a, you know, that's pure speculation because you're absolutely right to say that the development of that infrastructure has also generated a lot of, of tension and road building is always kind of viewed with concern Mm. by the other side, but You know, I think the prospects of a breakthrough right now, particularly, as you said, given the kind of nationalist rhetoric on both sides of the border, is probably somewhat doubtful. I think India is somewhat constrained in its strategic options, although this past year we did see certain economic moves being made to counter Chinese aggressions along the border. Um, So I think... The short-term outlook is certainly likely to be kind of more of the same, although it's it's possible that it may shift more to the Eastern sector where things you know are, are more complicated. And you know, as we discussed earlier, have to do with water sharing along the Brahmaputra in a really crucial way, which is less of a concern in, in uh, the Western sector, even though the headwaters of the Indus are in Tibet. But I think you know, there is always the possibility of some sort of return to, you know, status quo, status quo ante. There perhaps is the possibility of a diplomatic breakthrough, although I, I think that is not likely given the current climate. Mm-hmm. And I think that would probably realistically have to come from China. They have the sort of the upstream advantage. Right. Uh, and And I think given also Chinese inroads in Pakistan. I think there is a sort of a strategic advantage that China possesses that I think would also mean it would have to probably make the big diplomatic overture. But you know whether India is prepared to give up its claim to Aksai Chin in exchange perhaps for China to give up its claim to Arunachal Pradesh, mm. um, You know, I don't know. I mean, certainly as an outsider with no direct kind of national stake in this, I would be inclined to say, well, I think that's a pretty good deal because Arunachal Pradesh is a lot more resource rich uh, than Aksai Chin, which is basically worthless from a sort of resource perspective. And in fact, I think its principal value for India really rests in its cartographic value, that this was a territory that... India came to sort of see as part of its national outline, as part of the, the geo body of India. So that I think is a difficult, um, you know, it, that may be a difficult pill to swallow. But of course, you know, as an outsider, I, I perhaps have a little less sort of emotional
0: mm. uh,
1: involvement in, in, in that. But
0: No, I think you're completely right about that. I think even when we look at Kashmir, or we look at our national, it's never just about, um, it's never actually about anything rational, really, it's more of coming from like a sentimental value um, of uh, having grown up with certain maps, and then uh, sort of there being an animosity already between the neighboring nations. I believe I read somewhere that the maps you grow up with really define how you view your state and by extension, how you view yourself as a, a member of that state. So I think it's it's just a very touchy issue because it's always um, uh, an us versus them language is employed when we talk about maps, particularly even when there was uh, news earlier this year that China has built residences inside of India and yeah. uh, you know that was a big, uh, that was a big big issue, and then the, the predominantly the language that I was seeing was they have come into our land, so it's very very clear how people feel about it. I don't think it'll be as simple as oh yeah you can take action, you know. Um, no, of
1: course, of course not.
0: Right? Yeah. You're
1: absolutely right, and and this is, I mean, you know, this is only heightened, I think, in the case of India by India's own birth narrative, right. which is, right. you know, in partition and in the, the sort of amputation of mm-hmm. parts of this territory. And of course, this is very much, I mean, we also see this in calls by particularly the Hindu right to mm-hmm. you know, a kind of an undivided India. Um, right. Which yeah. You know, which in some cases, depending on whose map you look at, could stretch well into Tibet or even into Southeast Asia. But mm-hmm. the notion of a partition, I mean, in the words of Jinnah, uh, mm-hmm. in describing Pakistan, this maimed, mutilated, moth-eaten state uh, that he was left with at partition, yeah. you know, there is this real conflation mm-hmm. with bodies and states. I think we take that as you uh, suggested, and from the time we're, we're quite young, uh, we take that as a sort of natural extension of our national identity. And that, I think, is, is something that is uh, is difficult And thinking about, you know, in my own case, growing up in the U.S., it, it would be very strange to suddenly see a map of of the U.S. with a state missing. Although, you know, from my perspective, it could probably stand to lose, you know, one or two certain states, but, um, you know, <laughs> okay. but, but, uh,
0: <laughs> by California,
1: that's, that's another, that's another better. Yeah. Or well, I was, I was thinking more of Florida given just oh, the cost in various elections in the, the right. past couple of decades, but that of course is, you know, domestic politics, which I should probably avoid discussing.
0: <laughs> but I think, yeah, borders are so interesting as a political concepts, because when you really, really think about it, um, they're just constructions of of the man-made, the human-made, especially when we speak of them in terms of international relations, not to put in any jargon, but, you know, it's all constructivist, as they would say, it's all made by humans, but at the, at the same time, we see them as these immovable constructs that just cannot change. But they're predominantly there because of the sentiments of the people who are living within those borders. I believe even in the Middle East, um, I'm not sure, I'm forgetting which state it was, but ISIS, I believe, in Syria, when they initially got a hold of some of the ammunition and all of that, and they started blowing up borders, Mm -hmm. uh, which had no political, like on the ground, it, it had no real repercussions. Like it wasn't changing anything. But it was, and people were just uh, shocked, like they were just thinking, why are you wasting so much of your ammo and stuff like this? But then they pointed out that these are colonial borders. We we are trying to make a point, we're trying to make a symbolic point that you have left us in, in this mess of conflict because you completely divided the region in a very odd way. Um, so it's, well, yeah, borders.
1: You know. Yeah, and of course there are, I mean, the, the colonial legacy and border-making extends far beyond the Himalayas, as, as you've yeah. know, as you alluded to, certainly in the Middle East. I mean, I forget whether it was Jordan or an, a neighboring state, but the comment that, I think it was Churchill. Who,
0: yes, Churchill's hiccup. I think it was Egypt. You know, e- yeah. well, and
1: one of them, there was a comment about how they managed to get the borders drawn before lunchtime or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And of course, we can also... Also think of the the Radcliffe Commission and in drawing the lines of partition, you know, six weeks project to carve out India and Pakistan Mm. um, in a a very hasty and uh, consequential way. But the notion of these border lines, you know, in that sense, actually, the colonial attempts to create a scientific border in the Himalaya was actually a very thoughtful process in some sense yeah. um, even though it obviously yielded uh, unintended and, and really tragic consequences but the speed at which colonial powers not just Britain of course uh, but others carved up other territories has certainly left us with consequences that we're still grappling with today and you know it, it produced rivals where there weren't rivals I mean we can think of the lines drawn in Africa which suddenly, created i think this was the anthropologist basil davidson who made this observation that you impose a border and suddenly a trader becomes a smuggler uh you know that suddenly the person who is used to carrying his or her goods from you know one place to another and trading suddenly Mm -hmm. uh, needs a passport to do so or else risks being labeled a a smuggler
0: yeah Um, i mean yeah that's uh much, much to think about. I think even the, I'm not sure how true the Churchill hiccup thing is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I it wouldn't surprise me if it was honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just given, I think how much his history you know and I know little. I obviously don't know one tenth of what you know, but just the general cavalier attitude towards drawing borders. I believe it's the Egyptian border. I'm not sure with who it's shared with. But it goes straight and then it takes a tiny dip and then it comes back up and keeps going straight. And the story is that he was drinking a lot, apparently, one afternoon. And he was going through, like, he was just, like, using a ruler and then he had a hiccup and then that is why you see the little dip and then he recovered and then he, he just went went forward. He said, yeah, this, this works. Um, and, yeah, who, who knows if that's true or not. But um, coming back to the British, obviously, uh, it's it's evident that the British have irreversibly complicated the region's geopolitical dynamics, like we discussed, especially the attempt to make Tibet a buffer state, um, has particularly destabilized South Asia. Do you think, uh, or do you as an historian, see any scope for India and China to Decolonize this dispute by way of mutual cooperation. Do you think that's a possibility, or is there any other alternative?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and and um, not one that I think I have a good answer to. I, I think the status of Tibet really complicates mm-hmm. you know, the historical status of Tibet has really complicated the sort of subsequent relations between India and China, and that's you know I mean whether that's in India's relationship with the Dalai Lama and his exile in 1959 and being given uh, refuge in, in India by by Nehru, or the British attempts to configure Tibet and as a buffer state, as you say, sort of vis-a-vis China and, and India. And in some sense, the, one of the tragedies of the history of Tibet is that it did not kind of emerge in the sort of international order when other states were so in terms of you know its window of sort of de facto independence it was not recognized by international uh, other states and so the messy political status of it whether vis-a-vis the Qing empire or the republic of china or the people's republic of china or you know the British empire in India or the Republic of India. Mm. uh, There's, you know, partly this is the sort of the messiness of the succession of states, as well as the development of of different forms of territory and thinking about political territory in new ways and ways that require those borders that Tibet didn't necessarily have, or for that matter, Ladakh didn't necessarily have. So I think if we're looking to the future, I think we need to be careful about sort of seeking solutions in the past. You know, I think it's Mm -hmm. often sort of a trope among historians to say, well, or not among historians, I should clarify, actually among many sort of historically minded people to say, you know, history teaches us, Um, but. I think more often than not, the complications that the history of, for instance, Tibet kind of lend to modern international relations means that I think if we are to look for a diplomatic breakthrough or cooperation, I think there will have to be some form of forgetting involved as well as just you know remembering. And in some sense, that can only be achieved if India and China you know see it in their best interests and then in their common interest uh, to perhaps come up with a solution so that that's not a very satisfying answer to your question but i think you know there are potential opportunities for collaboration as both countries emerge as major powers on the world's stage i think we've seen both of them adopt different strategies for cooperation with other states and We're seeing, I think it's fair to say, a more belligerent approach from China in recent years. And, you know, whether that will remain the case is obviously very difficult to know. But I I would imagine that there will come a time where both countries will see it in their respective self interests to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that may be helped paradoxically, as I kind of speculated earlier, it may be helped actually by some of these kind of short-term tensions that have arisen over, you know, definition of the line of actual control. And I hope, Mm. I hope that that these tensions in recent years will perhaps, you know, help better define a a de facto border, whether or not that gets transformed into an actual international one Mm. uh, is a unknowable. But, you know, I I certainly hope that there will be ways for mutual cooperation, although at present, that that may not be the case.
0: Right. Uh, I think that's a a very perfect place for us to close. Dr. Gardner, thank you for all your valuable insights on the issue and sharing with us the unforgettable story around the man moving the Franco-Belgian border and also your opinion on Florida. Um, thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Policy Room.
1: Well, thank you, Ria, for having me. And, um, and to all the listeners in India, um, stay safe and, and take care.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Policy Room, produced by the Social and Political Research Foundation. SPRF is a youth-oriented public policy think tank based in New Delhi working to spark dialogues for a better democracy. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.